Before we continue our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come uh, to confess this morning our need, our perpetual moment by moment, breath by breath, need for your amazing grace to resonate sweetly within us. That we might walk worthy of this calling, that our lives might reflect your glory. Your grace that has been lavished upon us in Christ is fixed, settled forever in glory, eternally fixed. That is far beyond our capacity to even ponder. But as we tread this fallen world, as we continue to struggle with the reality of sin, that will someday be revealed. You call us to be a people of perpetual repentance. It reminds us of our need for you. It makes our hearts tender towards your mercy. It encourages the reality of who we are in Christ, that we are indeed your children. It gives us compassion for others. It's good for our soul. It gives us perspective and it continues to deepen um, our awareness of our need for your grace and your goodness that's extended to us continually. So we come and we ask you to hear the sincerity of our heart as we bow before you in repentance that we together would um, corporately road to hate our sin more and more and more. And continue to be overwhelmed and amazed at your grace that continues to build us up, to sanctify us, and to grant us capacity to worship you rightly. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we return to the book of Acts chapter 18, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23. The title of this morning's message is Transition and an Open Door. So I invite you to look there with me and let's read through these few verses together. Beginning in verse 18 and we'll read through verse 23. Paul, having remained many days longer, now that's in Corinth, took leave of the brethren and put out the seed for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. And since Rhea... He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. And then, and now he himself in the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up to greet the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent much time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Um, along the Amazon basin, just below my wife's birth city of Manaus, there's an interesting little section of the basin called the meeting of the waters. 
and it's where the Solomon's River and the Negro River run together. And for a stretch of the basin, you can ride out there into the middle of the waters, and there is a distinctive brown part of the basin and a distinctive black part of the basin. And the waters that you can ride along, and it's a beautiful, glorious sight to see how God works in nature. And then as you travel down the basin, the waters begin to naturally blend together and it becomes one distinctive color. And that part of the basin is a transition part, it's a transitional area of the basin. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And much like the Amazon basin, when you think about the book of Acts, it is a transitional book. And so before I get to our first point, I wanted to try to take a little bit of time in the introduction just to, to help us in terms of application. We think about the book of Acts, and we've talked about this earlier, but it, it, uh, it resonates this morning with our text. It's a transitional book. It's a book of history. This is a historical account of the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. Now, God has his people throughout time, from the beginning of time until he returns. God has his people. And the same was true in the old covenant. If you will, the people of God, the church always existed in the old covenant. So the church is not something uh, unique to the new covenant. But the church was confined, if you will, within the realms of geopolitical national Israel. That is to say, all of Israel was not true Israel, but all of true Israel, all of the Old Testament church, if you will, was confined within that context. In other words, the God-fears, those who were native Jewish people and the God-fears from around there, if there's anyone that was found in right relationship with God, they were found in right relationship with God in context to national Israel. Now again, that's not every single person that was related to that context. But if you were right with God, you were failing right with God through Judaism, through God's covenant with Old Testament Israel. Now, in space and time, which Acts records for us, there is the establishing of the new covenant. The establishing of the new covenant is the breaking forth of Christ fulfilling all of the old covenant. All the, old covenant, all the old covenant being fulfilled in Christ. And there was a moment in time when this became most poignant. Can you think when that was? Yes, you're exactly right. I know that's exactly what you're thinking. That's Pentecost, right? What happened at Pentecost? All true believers were fully filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a transition taking place at Pentecost. And there's the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit now fully indwelling all true believers. And so Pentecost becomes that point, if you will, in space and time where the new covenant is being established. And there where the new covenant is being established, all the old institutes of Judaism must fall away. They must die away. There must be a coming all the way to Christ. Now, Hebrews tells us all about that. When we worked through Hebrews uh, some a number of years ago, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us all about that. But for Jewish Christians in this time, 
there was a there was a difficulty coming all the way out of Judaism and coming all the way to the cross. Although they were genuinely saved, they were genuinely Christians, they were genuine followers of Jesus Christ, they still were steeped in Judaism. It was an integral part of every fiber of their being as native Jews. And there was a difficult transition for them here coming out of Judaism and coming all the way to Christ, so to speak, in in terms of putting away all the institutes of Judaism. Now, the moral truth, the moral law founded in Judaism is eternal and remains the same. But the ceremonial issues, the civil issues are put away. Now, can there be wisdom gleaned? Yes, but they're put away because they're consumed in Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ fully. And so they must fade away, but they were deeply rooted. They were deep patterns of life, and they fade away slowly. And we're going to see this morning, they faded away slowly for Paul as well. Now, Paul is a unique uh, person in Christianity. He's a unique uh, individual. He's the point man that brings uh, in in all space and time that God created. Paul is the point man to bring Christianity beyond the realm of Judaism into the Gentile world. Where we finally see that Gentiles are saved how? By faith alone. In Christ alone. Just like everybody else. But Paul is a point man. He's the point guard. He's the quarterback of bringing that reality forth. And Acts is a book that records that history, that records that transition. Now, I say all that to say this up front by way of application in the introduction. Acts is not the book that we look to when we're founding consistent doctrine in our minds and our hearts. This is what I mean by that statement. Acts has doctrine within it that is correct, but to find it consistently played out is another thing. If we look to find solid doctrine, well, we can look to a book like Romans and see the consistency of doctrine played out. But when we look to Acts, we must note that although we find genuinely true doctrine there, there's inconsistencies in how it's being lived out and exercised because God is doing a unique work that's recorded in Acts. It's a unique period of time. There's a unique special works of God that are taking place, recorded in the book of Acts, that are taking place in history as a transition is being made out of Judaism into a full-on following of Christ in the new covenant as it's established in space and time. So that's why many people get in trouble when they go to Acts and try to ground consistent doctrinal beliefs in Acts because Acts is not normative. In the book of Acts, what's recorded is special works of God and unique in a unique period of time. That's not going to continue on in the new covenant, okay? So when we look at Acts, we need to look at it that way. So we're not trying to found consistent doctrines from the book of Acts. We're seeing it as a unique period in time where God is doing special, a special unique work. Special things, not normative in the new covenant this is a transitional time a a founding time of the new covenant coming into being now that said i want to draw your attention to verse 18 and i want you to see 
there that Paul is taking a vow. And we're going to look at that vow and kind of talk about that a little bit. And then in this, we'll see the humanity of Paul because sometimes we don't. Paul's actually in transition here, too. Um, although he, the, the doctrine that he is laying down for these folks as he's carrying the gospel into the Gentile world is profound. But it's growing and maturing. And Paul and his emotions still dabbles back in to Judaism in terms of the exercising of his faith and in, in the, in the, in the, in the, the consistency and, and the passion in his heart is genuine and real. But he'll dabble back. He's going to see him dabble back in to Judaism in terms of his behavior. So look there with me in verse 18. It says, Paul, having remained there for many days longer. Again, this is in Corinth. He took leave with the brethren and he put out the sea for Syria. Now that's Palestine. He's going, ultimately, he's going back to, to, to uh, Jerusalem because he's made a vow. So he's headed back to Jerusalem and he's going to sail over to, <clears throat> to Syria. And he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him and he drops them off um, in Ephesus. And we're going to see a wonderful thing take place there. But it says in Centuria, he had his hair cut where he was keeping a vow. Now, again, a time of transition. And I want you to note in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, listen to what Paul says about himself there, talking about his being a, a Jewish man and his, his being steeped in the reality of being a Pharisee, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, and not a Pharisee like we see in the context that he's living in now, there in Jerusalem, where they're uh, lording things over the citizens, where they're there for um, monetary gain and power. Sound familiar? Leaders can do that, can't they? And so they're lording their role over the citizenry. Now, this is not Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, I mean, to the letter. But now his heart's been changed. And there's a transformation that's taken place in his heart. But the transformation that takes place in the person, in space and time, takes some time. It takes some time for the spirit to make that transition obvious on the outside. And so Judaism died slowly in Paul's life as well. We don't think about that, but here's, a, here's an example. Even Paul struggles with dipping back into the ceremonies. So he's taking a vow here. It's a Nazarite vow. We'll talk about that a little bit. But that's exactly what happened. He's taking a vow. And for us, the same can be true in Christianity. So I think back now, and I've been, God's been gracious to me, and I've lived as a Christian for numerous years now in my life, now that I'm growing older. And there's times that I, I look back and I say, you know, before God saved me, I was angry and selfish and quick-tempered. And then now I can look back at some days in my Christian life and say, you know what? I'm a saved, angry at times, selfish at times, quick-tempered at times, follower of Jesus Christ. It's a process. Now, I know these don't equate perfectly. So, Matt, you grant me some grace there. But it's something for us to think about. There's always a process here. And that's what we're seeing in Paul's life. He's a process of coming along. 
out of Judaism into a full following of Jesus Christ. The same is true in our sanctification, uh, reality of our sanctification. It's a process, and sometimes it's slow, and sometimes it's painful. But notice what Paul said in verse 7 there of Philippians chapter 3, although he described himself prior as a Hebrew of Hebrews, steeped in this reality. Look what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me in that reality of being a Pharisee, whatever things were gained for me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So there's the reality. Paul and every other Christian, that for, for Paul and every other Christian, there's the necessity and the reality of coming all the way to Christ. And for Jewish Christians in this context, that was a, a bit of a struggle. It was difficult for them to just drop Judaism. And move all the way to Christ. They had to transition. And the book of Hebrews speaks of that clearly. Talks about that quite a bit. But let's think about this vow here. So Paul remained in Corinth for a while. And he probably took the vow there. That's what that would, what the context would lead to. It doesn't say directly. But he took the vow in, in uh, Corinth. Why? Why would he take the vow there? Well, let's think about the vow. What this Nazarite vow is. It's a vow of setting oneself apart in a special way to God. And what you do is, uh, to symbolize this, and, and Numbers chapter 6 speaks of this directly. If you want to uh, look that up at a later time, you can see some of the details of it. But what you do is you allow your hair to grow. And so allowing your hair to grow is an outward sign, a visible sign, a reminder to you that you have set yourself apart for a special moment in time to consecrate yourself to the Lord. Now, usually the time frames were 30 days, 60 days, and 100 days. But there are Nazarites for life. Just for uh, for, for uh, pop quiz points, anybody know them? Samson, good job. We're studying the other one right Samuel. now in our Bible study. Samuel. Samuel, Samson, Samuel, and last prophet of the Old Testament. Come on, last prophet of the Old Testament. Last prophet of the Old Testament. John the Baptist, I knew it was on your tongues, yes. So those are three for life. Samuel, Samson, and John the Baptist. Okay, That's, that, was, that was free, that's bonus. But it's usually 30, 60, 90, or excuse me, 100 days. And as they would, uh, the, the, the letting the hair grow would remind them and would also remind others not to tempt them, not to provoke them. Because when Israel was found at her low points, there would be this, this uh, practice of trying to provoke those who were setting themselves apart with this Nazarite vow, provoke them to take wine. They would force them to take wine. Out of hatred for the vow, abstaining from wine, wine was part of uh, part of the uh, ritual of the vow. So that was the outward sign there. And, and at the end of the vow, they would cut off the hair and they would take the hair and with the other incense and they would take it to the temple in Jerusalem and make an offering. So that's where Paul's headed. He's going to cut the hair off. He's going to take it with him all the way to Jerusalem and make the offering that would end his vow. That's what's going on in context here. And along the way, as he sails to, to Syria again to Palestine, he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. Now, the Corinthian church, those are the two main teachers besides Paul. So now he's taking the two main teachers, this, this couple that's worked with him, uh, where he's now they provided him uh, work when he was low on funds. They're also they've helped to labor with him in the church. And now all, all of them are leaving. 
So who's on the scene now? Timothy, right? Timothy and Silas are on the scene. They're probably now taking lead role in discipling and leading the church. And they've probably groomed at least two people, which would be who? Well, Crispus maybe is an option. We don't know for sure. Crispus would be an option. And Titius would be an option, right? But probably um, probably uh, Timothy and, and Silas still remain there. And then Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila have left. And it says once they reached the port there, and since Rhea, he cuts his hair. And by the way, just for note, we know that a church was planted there. Romans chapter 16 tells us that. Phoebe there was a servant. And she carried Paul's letters back and forth. And you know where she's from? So we don't see much about it here in this context, but there was a church planted there. So on their way, as they're traveling back, as, they, as he's following through on, the, on the, the process of this vow, they just, you know, they, they stop here at the seaport and a church is planted. They planted a church there. Well, why do you think Paul was taking this vow? I mean, we see the humanity of them here. Why do you think? There's a practical way, or a reason why, right? It was in Corinth. What happened in Corinth? What did God do uniquely for Paul in Corinth? Yes. God came to him uniquely, spoke to him in a vision of the night, and promised him that no one would lay a finger on him, right? He said, Paul, you've been beaten from pillar to post everywhere you've gone thus far, everywhere you've gone, and I've blessed you with uh, conversions. Once that happened, it was followed by persecution. And Christ says to him, you know, here, I know you're frightened. I know you're at the end of your rope. I know you're ready to just, now I've poured out a blessing on you. Many are coming to faith. And I understand that you see the pattern. And you're looking for the persecution. And your heart is fearful. And you're ready to walk away. You're ready to pack it up. But I'm going to protect you here. I'm not going to let anyone lay a finger on you. And Paul had a long ministry there. A year and six months. The longest he stayed anywhere at this point thus far. And so Paul in his heart, this is a way for him to thank God. For God's, for God's special mercy on him there in Corinth. But it comes from an Old Testament, uh, excuse me, Old Covenant pattern. It comes from a pattern of Judaism. So in his heart, he wants to thank God. And the only way he can conjure up a means of giving his heart to God and thanking him for such kindness at that moment in life when he was about to fold it up is to go back to this pattern. So he makes a Nazarite vow. It's a promise, if you will. The, the root word that is there is Nazar. And Nazar and it means to promise, to consecrate oneself. The Greeks uh, took up the same, the, the same root word and just used it to describe holiness or devotion. So if you hear Nazar in the Greek, it's just, uh, it's just a taking of the old Hebrew root word and they used it for holiness or devotion. So again, it's separating oneself off to the devotion of God for gratitude or deliverance. And that's Paul's case. Now, what about us when we think about this? Well, I want you to see that, that even Paul struggles. The, the, the Hebrews struggle. It's a time of transition. But for us and anyone else in the new covenant, it's a coming all the way to Christ. Paul mentioned that he looks back and he would look back on this vow 
when he's writing to the Philippians. He looked back on his vow. And you see, the vow I made, it was with sincerity in my heart. With every effort that I could, that I could imagine to conjure up, to thank God for his kindness to me there. But later he would say, even that I would count as loss compared to knowing Christ. So for us as followers of Jesus Christ, there is no special separating oneself for Christ. Why? Like Paul, although he's still working through that, like Paul, if, we're, if you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, you are fully and dwelt by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life. He abides within you. And every aspect of your life is consecrated to God in Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute, brother. I don't emotionally feel like that all the time. That's true. Wait a minute, brother. I don't act like that all the time. That's true. But nonetheless, you are continually, perpetually, until Christ comes back for you, hidden in Christ every moment, every second of your life, from the moment that the Holy Spirit indwelt you at salvation to the moment that God quickens you to eternal uh, life forever in glory, where there is no more sin, for every moment as a Christian on this planet, you are consecrated fully in Christ. And that was true with Paul, but he's working through it. And so for us, we need to understand that's true for us. Although we're seeing things here in transition, we're seeing Paul make this vow and we're seeing the sincerity of it. As they coming all the way to Christ, that's still working out in Paul's life. And for us, we can lay hold of that in application. Although, again, we're not steeped in Judaism as Paul was, but we're steeped in reality of a struggle in a fallen world. We're steeped in reality of continue to struggle with our sin. And as we do, know this and be encouraged and take heart. You're sealed. You're consecrated fully in Christ. Now on the flip side, there's no milk toast Christians. There's no concept of a baby Christian in the Bible. That's conjured up out of our culture. You're not living as an immature Christian for a, a period of time. And that's just expected. You're in Christ from the moment that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. Are we growing in our sanctification? Yes. But is there, is there a point of time that we just randomly walk off and say, well, I get, a, I get a pass here because I'm a young believer. No. The Spirit of God continually quickens us to repent of our sin. And the Spirit of God continually moves us to adore Christ. And the Spirit of God continually moves us to stay in His Word that we might know Him more fully, that wisdom might fill our, our being, and that we might walk as light in this world. That goes from beginning to consummation in Christ. From Christ entering in us, in, in, into us, and the Spirit of God at the point of salvation, fully really quickens us uh, to glory. That's our reality. That's who we are in Christ. The same is true for all believers in all periods of time. But here you see the reality of life, even in Paul. So take heart there and embrace the process, but know that we are not set apart in a special way for a special point in time. We're set apart, period. All of life, every aspect of life. So there's no compartmentalizing the Christian life, is there? Why? Because uh, our culture will tell us, well, there is. Brother, when you go to the workplace, you just check that Christian card. That's out. 
I will fire you. We'll fire you. You know, it's coming to that. In some ways, we have just had a pass. That's not how it works for us. Now, th- there's, there's place for prudence. There's place for wisdom. There's place for courtesy. We don't need to be obnoxious and arrogant. That's not what God has called us to be. But we need to be blood earnest. We need to be sober. There's just not room in the Christian life for compromise when it comes to obedience to Christ, whatever the context may be. So let me give you a few encouraging verses there when we think about our, our being set apart as we think even Paul here struggled with that reality. So if you struggle with that reality, you're not alone. We all struggle with it at times, even Paul. But look at the reality of who we are. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, live in them, consistently in all phases of life, in all arenas of life at all times. Romans 18 and 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him is raised, that, that, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now there's the great hope. There's the great reality. There's the ultimate context for us here as we think about this. For us, weird bad. You know, I mean, we look at this and we just read it through. We're like, wait a minute, you know, where did that come out of the blue? That's weird. And this is kind of consumed Paul because he's leaving Corinth. This is about 1,500 miles, by the way, to get back over to Jerusalem. This is not a, this is, this is a, a, this is a turning point. And every fiber of Paul's being, we have to take it. If we take him face value, every fiber of his being was sincere. And by the way, God established Judaism, didn't he? Judaism had a purpose. Remember, all Old Testament believers, they come to Christ. They're coming in that context. They're not coming and hanging out just in in Judaism, but they're coming to Christ, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the, the Messiah yet to come in space and time for them. But that is pictured fully in Judaism. And that's the parameter for all mankind that we find in the Old Covenant. It's there. I mean, externally, they even had some layers to try to, that, that, they were, that they were forbidden from getting close enough. But those layers never became barriers for Christ, uh, for, for, for uh, the truth of Christ and God to reach out to them in salvation and bring them to faith. And a real faith in a real Old Testament context. But nonetheless, that was the means. That was the door of entry there. And now we see Pentecost. And now we see the new covenant. And now we see the spreading of the gospel. Beyond the confines of Judaism as, as the hub. Now it goes to the ends of the earth. Whereas before, that was not the case. Now it goes to the end of the earth. Uh, and the apron strings are now being removed from Judaism. And it's a period, it's a transition. And note that we have them. They happen for us too. We have transition. We have struggles. We have weaknesses. We have old patterns. 
that we often fall back into. And again, we don't want to beat up on Paul much here, but this is uh, this is a reality. We're all called to reckon with who we are in Christ. And there's a full on all encompassing indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit that calls us to come all the way to Christ and to live out every fiber of our being, every moment of time to his to obedience to Christ, trusting him. And uh, to move us and strengthen us to do so. Well, that brings us to the open door. And I want you to look at me there in verses 19 through 23 at the open door. And so it says uh, they came to Ephesus. And now that's Paul or excuse me, that's Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. They come to Ephesus. That's interesting. He was looking to do that a long time ago, right? What happened? Paul wanted to go into Asia Minor a long time ago. First missionary journey, what happened? Yes. He was forbidden, right? God wouldn't allow it. Good thing for us, because where did he go? Europe. I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know everyone's ethnicity in here, but uh, I think Europe will be covered. Good thing for us to carry the gospel into Europe. But now he's going back to Ephesus. How about that? And so he leaves uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila there. But he goes into the synagogue in verse 19 and he reasons with the Jews. In verse 20, it says, and they asked him to stay for a longer time, but he didn't consent. But taking leave. And he says this to them, I will return to you again if God wills." Then he sets sail from Ephesus and he goes to the port city of uh, um, Caesarea. And then he says he goes up. And greets the church, and then he goes back to Antioch, Antioch, preceding Antioch, where the first mother church, plant church that they came out of to begin to carry the gospel ultimately into Asia Minor and Europe. So, one of the great things about closed doors is this sometimes they're opened up a little later. And that's exactly what we see in Ephesus. This is where he wanted. This is this is that this is the prize. This is where Paul had his eyes from the very beginning. Who knew Corinth would be the way? And Corinth was a huge blessing. Who knew? God brought him all the way to Europe. And they planted churches all throughout Europe. In the major city of Corinth. In Sin City at that time. And the Spirit of God brings them there. Protects Paul in a unique way. When he's just about out of gas. He's fearful. And God comes. And makes a promise to him and comforts him. And then because of that, Paul dips back in to his, to his Jewish tradition and makes a vow. And now in making the vow, that necessitates that he goes back to Jerusalem. And on the way back to Jerusalem, after the sincere vow, that's not going to be necessary in Paul's life much longer, but he's learning like all of us have to learn. Let that be a blessing. Apostle Paul, which we kind of like, man, that was a unique guy. He had to learn. Just like we have to learn. But the grace of God brings him now full circle and on the way back to Jerusalem to keep his vow, the end, to end his vow, which needs to happen with an offering there in Jerusalem. They go through Ephesus. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him, who he would have never had with him had he not been in court, broken and frightened, and God sent him to to companions at the perfect time when he was out of funds. 
And they provide him a way to, to be a, a, an itinerant minister, to make his way so he can continue to minister and not have to, to uh, take from the Corinthians. Then he writes them back, does he not? When he writes back to Corinth, he said, look, you know, I never took anything. I never expected money from you. I worked without, without uh, uh, taking money from you. Which at that time was good for the Corinthians. And they felt the, the authenticity of Paul and they felt the heart of Paul. And it made, a, it made a nice means for Paul to minister to them. And it was all made possible by God bringing Priscilla and Aquila into their lives, into his life. They're in Corinth. So he gives them a companion's. They, they're able, he's able to, uh, uh, to work for them. He's able to provide his own way until uh, Timothy can come from Philippi with monetary support. And during that period of time, he gets monetary, monetary support from Philippi and he gets good report back from Thessalonica, from, from Silas who was left in Thessalonica. And he was frightened there that they would just fold up and leave the faith. He had to leave quickly and he was worried about them. He was concerned that the church there was just going to erode and fade uh, and tremble and fade away. And the faith would, would prove not to be genuine. But yet Silas comes back and gets good report. They're holding true in the faith. And so now here he has this means to provide for himself so he can continue to minister in Corinth. He has uh, these, these new co-laborers in the gospel, these dear friends for life now that God's given to him at this low point of his life. And now it gives him the means to, con to continue on until monetary support comes, until good news comes, until then giving, then that gives that lays the groundwork there for God to come in a unique way and promise him I'm not even going to let you be. I'm not even going to let them beat you here. I'm not even going to let you lay a finger on you here. You're going to miss you here a long time. You're not going to have to run away. And that brings the vow out of Paul's heart. Old Testament context, Judaism context. But nonetheless, where is it running them to? Ephesus. And he gets to take Priscilla and Aquila with them. He leaves them there. They found a church. They found a church there. There's a church founded in Ephesus. And as he takes this vow and continues to move on towards Jerusalem, we see here that he planted some seeds before he passed on through Ephesus. What does it say there to us? Well, look. He entered the synagogue there in verse 19 and he reasoned with the Jews. Now that was his pattern, wasn't it? So that's not that, that's the norm. That's what he's been doing all where we see these outposts from, the, from the, uh, the dispersion of the Jews in past and history past. The diaspora, where they've now been uh, moved out of Jerusalem and they've settled in Gentile lands. You see these synagogues there. So Paul, that was his pattern of ministry, of, of, of trying to begin to evangelize out into these Gentile areas. He would first go to the synagogue. which is So, so this is a natural pattern for him. But this is not a natural response, is it? What's, what were the responses before? What's the normal response? What's it been? Yeah. They gnashed their teeth at him and they tried to run him out of town. Everywhere he's been in every synagogue. Now look at this. Look at Ephesus. He just happens by happens chance. Take this vow. He's wandering back through Asia where he wanted to be long ago. Now in God's timing, he's right where he desired to be after many churches have been planted in Europe. He's with Lifelong friends, what would be lifelong friends, he gets to drop them off there, leave them there as he goes on to continue his vow. But look at how he starts. 
He's going to lay some groundwork for them. Look at this. Now he entered there and he reasoned with them. In verse 20 it says, and they asked him to stay for a longer time. Now he's not used to that. You know, we want to hear what you have to say. Please stay. Please continue. Well, he's on the clock now with his vow. So he has to get to Jerusalem. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. And we find a new mission field and we find new workers provided here for that mission field. So scripture tells us that Aquila and Priscilla started a church there. Ultimately, you know where the church was founded? They probably started in the synagogue, but you know where they moved the church? They're in Ephesus. Into Priscilla and Aquila's house. That's where the church started. That's where the church gathered in their home. So they moved there. They started their business there. And they were probably, we don't know definitively, but they were probably business owners of the tent making business, the, the leather, the leather crafting. And they probably had other outposts that people were, had established and worked for them and uh, at other places. They, nonetheless, they were able to move forward. And so now they've set up work there. About five years, about five years, we'll find them back in Rome again. But they're there at least five years in Ephesus. So their home becomes the, 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 the gathering place for the church that's established in Ephesus. And they become the founding missionaries. Now, they are missionaries who are working, paying their way. And don't get me wrong. If we're able to pay uh, for missionaries to, to go into other parts of the world, other locations on the planet, and we could pay for every cent of the, of the, of the uh, missionary endeavor, that would be wonderful. But it's not an absolute necessity. And here we see an example from Aquila and Priscilla. So they're working their way, uh, making a living for themselves. They're in Ephesus, providing for themselves. And they're not the point missionaries. The point missionary is gone. Now, does the point missionary have to be there for a church to be planted? Can lay people plant a church? Come on, that, that's not a loaded question. Can they? Yes, they can. Do we have an example here in this text? Yes, we do. Priscilla and Aquila. They're there working, making a living for themselves, and they're the primary church planters. They're the primary missionaries there. Now, did Paul lay some wonderful groundwork for them? Yes, he did. But he left. And here we have just normal, regular, everyday Christians working, providing for themselves, and planting a church. They get it started. It meets in their house. So they're lay people here starting, starting a church. And is that faithfulness? Yes, it is. They're active, Christian, they're active Christians. They're willing to be mobile. Now, is that necessarily going to be your calling? Well, maybe not. But let me just say this. They're active Christians willing to be mobile. That's a big deal in God's economy. I'll just leave it at that. That's a big deal in God's economy. And certainly we see the faithfulness to that here with, Apil with Priscilla and Aquila. So they opened their home to Paul. They labored with him in tent making. They labored with him in the gospel. And God provided this wonderful couple to Paul at a time when he desperately needed them. And then we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, listen to this. The churches in Asia greet you. Priscilla and Aquila greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Paul writes back to the, to, to the Corinthians and just lets them know a little bit about those folks that were there at one time ministering to them. Oh, by the way, 
There's a church meeting in their house in Ephesus. How wonderful, how glorious is that? So they wanted Paul to stay, but he had to get to the feast. We don't know exactly which one. See, you know, it's, it's Passover or Pentecost, or Pentecost, excuse me, in, in order it would be Passover or Pentecost. We don't know which one. But he has to get to the feast. That's, that's part of completing the vow. He's going to make an offering there. So he has a time frame that he has to meet. All that's related to the vow as he's moving. But he says there in verse, <clears throat> in verse 21 that he's leaving them. And he says, I'll return to you again if God wills. Now, that's the perfect answer for every question. Okay? There's the perfect answer. He has a commitment he has to keep. He wants to return. And he will return if God wills. That's the perfect answer right there. Any, any circumstance of life, any context you have, there's the perfect Christian answer. You want a perfect, is there a perfect Christian answer? Well, there is, right? There it is. If it's your intention, I'll do it if God wills. If I can do it, I'll do it if God wills. Now that's about as solid as you can get right there. It's just a God-honoring way to think. And then he sets sail. And says when he, in, in verse 22, when he lands there in Caesarea, he went up. Where do you go to go up? Where's up? In that context of the world, that part of the world. City. What city? Where's the city? Where's the temple? Jerusalem. Right? So he's going up to Jerusalem. So he's going back to the mother church. So he's going to back and he's going back and giving a good report to the mother church there where we had the council, right? Where we had uh, Peter first come long ago and say, in surprise, again, what we, we find this in, in, in the book of Acts. We find these crazy transitions where Peter, again, Peter struggled. Acts records that. We're going to see it in, in, in chapter 19. As we move to 19. We're going to see this reality of the struggles. Again, struggles of transition. It's a transitional book. So we have to, we have to take that in context. But you think back to the council there in chapter 15 of Acts where Peter's giving a testimony there before the council. And he's talking about the Spirit of God and dwelling the Gentiles right before his eyes. And how does he say it? He's like, and the Spirit of God and dwelt them, fell upon them, just like the Spirit of God fell upon us in the beginning, almost as if he was shocked. The Spirit of God fell upon the Gentiles also. And he's making this report almost in the fence. You know, like, don't blame me. I didn't do it. It was God. God did it. I was there, and the Spirit of God fell on the Gentiles. So they, there was always a struggle with understanding how this was going to, to, to play out in space and time. And you see that in Peter's language. It's almost like my children when I come into the kitchen and there's ice cream all over the floor, and one has a spoon in his hand and one has ice cream all over his face. I said, What did you do? He said, He did it. He did it. That's exactly how Peter was. God did this. I didn't do it. Don't blame me. I, just, I was just there, and then the Spirit of God fell on him. That's exactly what happened. And it's a learning process here, a transition. And Paul's experienced that. And now he's going back to the temple to keep this vow. And he's going back and he's going to check in with the mother church there. And he's going to give them good report of what has happened on his missionary journeys thus far. Remember, we're into the second one. So it's not a smooth, uh, a smooth, clear-cut transition here. So know this, in verse 23, we're going to begin to enter into the third missionary leg. It's not clear-cut like the others have been kind of clear-cut for us when Paul transitioned. This is going back, taking the vow, but after he moves back out, 
he's really going to kick in the third leg of his missionary journey. So I want you to look there in verse 23. Well, excuse me, let me, let me back up there, 22. He, he goes to the mother church there in Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem. And then he went back to Antioch, Antioch, the city in Antioch, where they were first launched as missionaries, right? He goes back and he gives good report there. He tells them all that has transpired thus far. And then in verse 23, and having spent some time there, primarily, I believe, in Antioch, but certainly in, in uh, Jerusalem also, because he completes his vow there. So he's completed his vow and is finished. He's made his offering. He certainly did that at the time when he was in Jerusalem. He was up in Jerusalem and he meets with the church and he certainly gives a good report. Same would be true in Antioch. And, it's, and he spent a little time there. And then he's and then after that, here this begins the third leg of his journey. It's not really listed for us here, but that's what happens. This is the third leg, okay? After that, he passes successfully through uh, the Galatian regions into Bergia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, where is that chronologically or, or, or geographically? Excuse me. Geographically, where is that? That's where he began, right? So this is the third time back to the same churches that he planted, if we count the first time when he planted. So this is three times back to the same area. What's he doing? He's encouraging them. He's teaching them. He's, he's, he's uh, uh, checking on them. So it's a making of disciples. And then he leaves it with them for to see the multiplication of their discipleship, of their evangelism and their discipleship. So Paul goes back and what does he do? He continues to disciple. He continues to evangelize the same place. So he's not spread himself. I mean, you know, Paul's, this is this is pretty big uh, you know, swath here. But he's continued to go in the same patterns. It's the third time the same pattern. And that's healthy for us to think about as well. So what's he doing? He's pouring into the same group of people. Evangelism, discipleship, same group of people. And then watching them take his efforts. The Lord use him in their lives and then take their lives and see them multiply in their own evangelism and their own discipleship. So that's the pattern. That's our consistent biblical pattern we see. And it starts here with these first three missionary journeys. So he goes right back to the same place. And begins to pour into them and pour into them over again. And he strengthened them. He strengthened the disciples there. And ultimately, we'll see him go back to Ephesus and have a wonderful, lengthy ministry there in Ephesus. Even longer than the ministry he has in Corinth. So there's the open door. This was shut to Paul long ago, but in God's timing, this door was opened back up and opened back up in a glorious way. And the same is true in our lives. I know you've all experienced doors that are just closed. They're just closed, whatever the case may be in your life. And you've pled with the Lord to open them up. Now, I'm not about to stand here and tell you, well, they're just going to be opened up. It's just a matter of time. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if God intends to open a door, he will. And he'll open it at just the right time. If God intends to leave a door closed to you, he'll leave it closed. But know this, in those two realities, there exists this beautiful possibility of doors being closed at one point in your life that will later be opened. And when that happens in your life, know that that is God's perfect timing in your life. 
and know that you can give thanksgiving there. That God closing the door before has now been a means to, for, for him to work out all kinds of blessing and encouragement in your life to equip you for the time that he's going to open up the door that you thought should have been opened long ago. That's going to be opened up on his time, which is just the right time and just the right time for you. And when he does, you can know that the whole process was to his glory and for your spiritual good. All of it was for your spiritual growth and maturity because you, like Paul, are in a process here. Moving all the way to Christ. And when the doors remain shut, you give God glory, knowing that they remain shut for your good and his glory. If they remain shut, they remain shut because it's God's purpose in your life. And that too is good. And in that, God is pouring blessing into your life and strengthening you and equipping you in unique ways to deal with that reality of the door being closed. But know here from Scripture, there are times in God's economy in our lives where doors that were closed prior will later be opened. And we give Him glory and respond accordingly. We step through them in faith, just as Paul did. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for our time here. We thank you for this text. We thank you for um, your recording for us and preserving for us the, the difficulties, the, the entanglements, the struggles, the, the frailty of, um, that we have and the frailty of our being as, as we see transition. We know this is a unique once in all of creation transition here that we're looking at. Uh, recorded for us in Acts, but we all face transition, and certainly we thank you for recording this for us, this transition in space and time for your church. And we see that played out in Paul's life, and we see his humanity, and it's good for us. It, it encourages us knowing that uh, so many times we are fearful and doubtful, but yet you, even though we struggle in transition. You are there and it's for our good and you walk with us through all the transitions of our lives as uh, your children, as blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for open doors that were closed prior. It's humbling. Sometimes we're discouraged. Sometimes we're disappointed with closed doors. So I pray that you take this text and you would help us to, to see it, see them rightly. That it, that it is uh, according to your sovereign will. If doors are closed and if they're later open, it's all according to your sovereign will and it's good for us. And that we can take that disappointment, that we can, we can take that struggle, and we can take that doubt, and we can lay it at your feet. We can lay it at the altar of our God and say, strengthen us, help us, give us uh, encouragement and strength to trust you and follow you in faithfulness and obedience. So we thank you for those realities, and we thank you for the hope that we have in all circumstances of life, knowing that you are bringing them about for your ultimate glory and for the good of your people. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.